And at some point, six months in, our meetings were getting really good. And I was like, but if you all want to really do something about gentrification, it's going to take 20 years. Ha ha. And the group, because they were all in their 20s, were like, cool, 20 year project. Got it. And we literally now are, you know, we have three salaried working group members and we are thinking of ourselves as a 20 year project. Hello and welcome to Art Restart where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, a production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with two theater artists, Aaron Lanzman and UNCSA alumna Mallory Catlett. Aaron and Mallory's book, The City We Make Together, City Council Meetings Prima for Participation, was published by Iowa University Press just this past summer. So a little bit of background about City Council Meeting, the theatrical project Aaron and Mallory made together. That's the subject of their book. About a decade ago, Aaron was working on a project in Portland, Oregon, and a local colleague invited him to attend a City Council Meeting. Now, some of us might prefer to chew off our own arms, but Aaron is more game and curious than most of us. Plus, he'd made a career of making works of theater in a variety of unusual settings, and he liked discovering inherently theatrical moments in everyday settings that might easily be missed. Well, such a moment presented itself that very evening when a well-dressed 60-something by the name of Pete Colt clearly well-known to and barely tolerated by the city councilors, testified about the drug-related paraphernalia that littered a children's park in the city. At the end of his testimony, to make his point, he dumped the contents of his briefcase, which contained the very litter he'd railed against that he'd picked up that morning, onto the table in front of him. And thus was sown the seed of what would become city council meeting, a participatory theatrical event that Aaron, along with Mallory and theater artist and visual designer Jim Finlay, mounted in several American cities, including New York City, Tempe, Arizona, and Houston, Texas. In city council meeting, audience members could, if they wanted, recreate an actual city council meeting from a transcript they were given. The details of the productions and of how Aaron and Mallory created city council meeting are, of course, in their published primer, which I encourage you to read. Since City Council meeting, Mallory and Aaron have continued building their remarkable and eclectic careers. Mallory is now the co-artistic director of the legendary Mabu Mines Theatre Company in New York and is developing several new operas. And Aaron is artist-in-residence at Abrams Art Center in New York and is preparing the premieres of Nightkeeper, a new work commissioned by the Chocolate Factory Theatre, and Trouble Hunters, a performance created in collaboration with artists in Serbia. I started our interview by asking Mallory, who studied ballet in high school at NCSA, how she decided to pivot from dance to theater. Well, as a young person, classical ballet was my sort of passion. And so, but I was from a military family. And so at a certain point when I was just to get consistent training, I auditioned for NCSA, which is now part of the UN system, but at the time was just NCSA and I got in. So it really was my first, you know, artistic metier, I guess. So it was there at that school that I was first really able to have a lot of exposure to all forms of art, to theater, 
I had a good knowledge of classical music being a classical dancer, but musicians and visual art and the whole thing. So I think it was a multidisciplinary experience, even though it was a conservatory and it was very narrow in the conservatory sense. But many of my friends were musicians and actors. So I just, that's really where I first you know, was in a place where all the disciplines were coexisting and I had access to all of them. And uh, a lot of my friends were actors and they would ask me to come. I would sneak into their sort of workshop showings and shows and things. And they would always ask me what I thought afterwards. And I would just tell them what I thought. And they always found it really interesting. And it became like a thing where they would want to ask me in the snack bar what I thought. And so... (laughs) And they always found what I was saying really astute. And I I was just, you know, expressing my my thoughts. So that was just a really interesting thing that happened to me. And it was sort of the first time people, my peers, and they, often they were older than me because the actors were in college and I was in high school. And it, it was just the first time that I had sort of affirmation from a peer group, I guess, about my thoughts in a totally different form. And so I think it was probably then that I figured I wanted to do something in the theater, probably direct, but I wasn't really able to articulate that for many years because as a as a classical dancer, you know, you you're trained that it takes 20 years or 15 years or 10 years at least to to be able to do it, to have a right to do the form. And so it was a big hurdle for me to think that I could just shift into theater with no experience. So it took me a while because of that hurdle that was sort of ingrained in me because I was a a ballet dancer. And I'll also say that, like, I think that the thing that's that I've always taken with me as a dancer is that I'm very sensitive to the fact that, like, form has emotional content. And so I think what was valuable to my friends who were actors was that I had a very different approach about talking about what they were doing, because I think most of their training was a sort of like method acting kind of training or clowning. But because I would talk about structure or like how a gesture or how a text or affected me maybe. And I would often, you know, ask questions about, oh, if this had happened or if that had happened, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I probably talked about it in a very different way, but a way that was like concrete. And Aaron, your bachelor's from Tisch is from the experimental theater department. Yeah. Which makes me think that even at a young age, you knew you weren't just going to do, you know, Ibsen on stage, on a proscenium stage. What, uh, or I, I might be wrong, that might be coming up next. But anyway, <laughs> at what age did you realize that kind of making well made plays on a proscenium stage was not going to be your jam? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, there's a kind of series of inclusions and accidents that led to me going to the experimental theater wing and, and led to me not feeling beholden to a more traditional kind of way of making work. So you're right. No, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to gravitate toward traditional theater making. But also, like, I was part of a really scrappy, awesome youth theater company in Minneapolis in the 80s that a couple people ended up going to NYU two years before me, and they were like, only go to the experimental theater wing. And that company that I was part of was this strange haven for, like, 
this crossover between people who liked musicals and also who were in the punk scene. And I was in a really active, vibrant <laughs> punk scene in Minneapolis as a fan. Um, and can't imagine that Venn diagram. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I still can't quite imagine it either, but my first play was like the all city musical of anything goes. And then I was like, there are all these like people from this thing called the anarchist bowling league that were part of it. And anarchist bowling league would literally just drive around and throw bowling balls through army recruiter windows. <laughs> Um, and so they were, and they were like, yeah, but we like the people who are doing the weird theater. And so I think that just, you know, it was the first group of people that utterly accepted my strangeness. And I had a kind of epiphany the first time I went on stage that was like, here's where I feel at home. And I was, I have to say, I was like dreadful in that show. My dad has a you know very good natured joke about, you know, watching the whole chorus dance to the left and then like a second and a half later, I would dance to the left. So it wasn't like <laughs> nascent talent by any stretch. It just was a very rewarding combination of experiences and needs being met. And then when I got to the experimental theater wing, it was a similar kind of embrace of like, first of all, formally picking apart the component atoms of what makes a performance. Like I was very lucky to work with Mary Overly while she was developing Six Viewpoints, which is more commonly known through Anne Bogart's work, but I found like being around a really particular artist making a very elegant kind of breakdown of what are the like essential elements of art making that didn't just apply to theater, I think furthered me on this idea of like, oh, I could, you know, work as a dancer sometimes, or I, you know, could write for the page, or I could think about media. So it was just like a lot of it was like, circumstances were right and then my natural proclivity to want to push back against any particular form that i land in for better or for worse i think also lent itself to not feeling beholden so much so let's talk about that for better or for worse whatever you land in because you both have pretty remarkable artistic careers i think it's hard to describe you in just two or three words because you work in a lot of different manners and media i think and performance how did you talk about how you mapped out a career for yourselves? I think because I always knew that I wanted to do my own work and that I would always have to sort of carve out space to do that. I never felt like I had to rely upon a sort of the system out there, right? So even though for a while I was like, why is no one asking me to direct their play, like their new play? I realized at a certain point that it was because I if I really wanted to do that, I could have done that. But because I was actually working with people who were making things without writers or, you know, I was, I was always busy with other things. <laughs> so at a certain point it was like, well, if I had wanted to do that, I could have done that. But there was something in me, which always found that not to be the most interesting thing, even though it might've sustained me, my career in a different sort of way. So I mean, New York is a funny place because there's always the other thing pretty close to you that you, you feel like you should be doing or you could be doing, but you're just not <laughs> doing it. And so at a certain point, you kind of have to assess that. And, and what I realized was that it was because I wanted to do my own work and that took a certain amount of energy and time. And, you know, I had to figure out a way to organize my life around my own work. And also, you know, I realized that... <laughs> like probably later than that, I realized, well, I'm not, 
I don't, Aaron knows this, but like, I don't actually consider myself a storyteller. So I think like most people who write new plays want to work with someone who is like thinking about interpreting what they've written. And I don't really think about it that way. And I'm really interested in like, well, taking it apart and, (laughs) and not all playwrights want to do that. You know, not that I would take it apart in its outcome, but I would want to take it apart in the conversation around it, you know? And so that takes a certain kind of writer. And I've been lucky to work with really great writers like Aaron and other playwrights who love that sort of process, but I don't think it's for everyone. And it doesn't necessarily fit into a neat economic structure of how new plays are developed in New York either. So I'm into sort of labor intensity. (laughs) And Aaron, Mallory just described you, I think mentioned you as a, as a writer, a playwright, but you and your bio describe yourselves as a text maker and performance enabler. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tell me about develop, developing those, those descriptors for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you a story. So the first thing I will say is I spent way too much time worrying about whether and how I should slot into one of the prescribed roles within theater including like, you know, I worked for a bunch of years with Elevator Repair Service as a performer and ensemble maker. And I love that. But I loved it also because alongside that, I was always developing my own work. And that at a certain point, I couldn't really afford the time to be on tour with ERS a lot because I had other projects that were emerging and that were taking more of my interest and time. But for a long time, I was like, I should really figure out <laughs> like what kind of artist I am within the confines that one or another parts of the field stated. And the kind of turning point for me was that I had a meeting with a fairly prominent curator who curates seasons of new performance outside of New York and was interested in a project of mine and kind of in building a relationship. And, you know, they they were like, you know, I I really want to work with you, but I'm having trouble placing you. Like, are you, you know, an ensemble like ERS? Is that what you're building? Are you like a playwright director like Richard Maxwell? Are you kind of forming a company like Young Gene Lee? Are you doing this other thing? Are you more socially engaged work? Like they had all the words. And I was like, oh, yeah, I really should figure that out. And then I left and I was like, oh, no, actually, the answer is like whatever the project demands. So I think, you know, I often... Some, I like writing a play now and then, or what I think is going to be a play, and then often you know turns into something else. I, I tend to favor like heavy monologue-based work um, when I'm writing something from scratch that is not necessarily like derived from interviews or you know derived from found text. But I don't really have anything against making plays. It's just not a go-to for me necessarily. And I think I you know like Mallory, I like to pull apart things into you know, formal structures that may or may not be evident at first glance. And I don't, as a viewer, I feel like I'm often in a play figuring out where we're headed before we're headed there. And I don't mean it as like, I'm so smart. I just mean, there's a lot of plays out there and we've all seen a lot of them. So, um, and there's a lot of like methods and approaches that say, this is how you make a play. And I find that when I'm in that moment i start to tune out from what's actually happening on stage so i'm a real fan of work that disrupts my own sense of my intelligence and puts me in a kind of uncomfortable or unknowing place so i think that's just where i start to go as a maker like how can i challenge myself you know in terms of how i want to use time and um and an encounter with an audience 
you know, the project, the, the group that I work with most here at Abrams is called Perfect City. And it's young adults and other people in collaboration. Right now, we're working on a project with domestic violence shelter residents. And we're working on ways that, like, their stories can be, you know, alive outside of the shelter. And so how do we make it safe for them to tell their stories to also poke at a little bit how we think about protection for people who are vulnerable, right? Like the goal is to say, what would the neighborhood look like if people who were escaping domestic violence didn't have to be isolated to be protected? And the other members of the group are really gifted at working with the shelter residents and their kids to make interesting material. And then my role is to say like, oh, the frame around this is that the systems that are meant to protect people actually isolate them. Like somehow that that feels like what I do as an artist is just to distill down a very complicated set of laws, histories of policing, histories of how we look at different people's bodies and notions of safety and just say like, oh, the people we're trying to protect, we isolate. And then from there, talk to the collaborators and the people in the shelter about saying like, well, what would you know zoning look like or what would policing look like if this wasn't the case? So that feels like my role as an artist is to just like ask those really like thorny fundamental questions. Whereas, and that could be in a theater setting. Well, given that you've just mentioned a number of collaborative ways in which you work, I want to talk about your collaboration on city council meeting. What did you learn from that process about your own art making? I think, I mean, I think Aaron and I's work, we, we've taken away different kinds of things from working on city council meeting. But I, I think for myself, I had not worked with sort of non, non-performers or non-actors. And that has become really fascinating for me. But also just what I learned in city council meeting is really about that the limitation that you're dealing with really is the opportunity for invention if you really use the limitations so that instead of just often with theatrical adaptation, we kind of just like put in any input and output like theater that happens in a proscenium, right? And so the theater itself is like this like monster machine that kind of just ingests content and then spits out plays basically. So (laughs) if you... (laughs) So, but if you decide that that input is really going to determine, create a, a very specific set of limitations, and you really use those limitations, then what what it probably will spit out is something that no one's ever seen before, or something right, that will have to will require you to kind of reinvent and rethink and reimagine what you think that the theater is capable of or what it can contain. This became for me. I've always been really interested in not not like newness in in the sense of like I'm going to do something that no one's ever done before but like for me the question about invention has always been important and I think uniqueness and I always drew from that like if I could work with a group of collaborators and get us all to ask really deep important questions about who we are the material that we're dealing with in the moment that we're we're making it that it will and I really try to get that out of everyone I'm working with, that the thing will be very specific and very unique. With city council meeting, what I also learned is that the limitations that are there, if you take them seriously and you really see them as an opportunity, that also adds to the formal uniqueness of the thing that you're going to make. 
Aaron, what has really stayed with you as in in your art making? I mean, for me, I think I could just embrace the fact that every time I think I know what something is and where it's going, I probably don't. And to really embrace that as like, there was something very affirming with this project about taking on bigger challenges that don't seem to have a logical outlet or conclusion. And so, you know, with city council meeting, literally, it was a series of moments that were like, well, that's really cool to look at. Somebody dumping a bag of trash in the Portland, Oregon city council meeting provoked a response in me. And in that response, just like Mallory was saying, like in that response, if I go back to like pick through that meeting, which we do a lot in the book, I can see what the germs or seeds of a lot of different outlets were that then led to further research. And then the moment of being like, I think the audience should perform this and sticking to, as Mallory said, that obstacle or container really let the piece become things that I never could have foreseen or expected. So for example, like I now teach a freshman seminar using our research process that we put students through, and then they make a end of the semester performance based on local government meetings that they see around Princeton, like the Trenton, Princeton, and Hamilton. And the other thing about that that's led to is we're building a curriculum for middle school and high school students that I think, yeah, that I think on one hand is about like, well, we'd like to see more people from more kinds of communities get more engaged. But I think a lot of a lot of civic engagement work for young people stops there. And I think because what we found in working on the project was that young people who would take a workshop with us were like, oh, it means something for me to sit in the mayor's chair. And it allows, I think, for some creative thinking on the part of young people to imagine what the system might look like if it worked better or if it was better or just to see the problems of it as not being insurmountable. So the goal with the curriculum is to say civic engagement includes being on the city council, but it also includes really good activism and organizing. So I just feel like it keeps opening up this work. The other way that that's manifest is, you know, I started Perfect City thinking it was going to be the follow-up to city council meeting, right? Like I got taken to a specific meeting in London while I was on tour there for London developers and architects presented by then Mayor Bloomberg's sustainability chair, like the sustainability program called Plan YC. And I was like, oh, uh, uh, something clicked for me there, just like it had at the city council meeting I saw. And I was like, great, I'll, I'll assemble a group of young adults through my residency at Abrams and we'll make something in about a year and a half and it will be open-ended as to the form. And the young people in the group were like really focused on gentrification and the rhetoric of sustainability versus the reality of it. And at some point, six months in, our meetings were getting really good. And I was like, but if you all want to really do something about gentrification, it's going to take 20 years. Ha ha. And the group, because they were all in their 20s, were like, cool, 20-year project. Got it. And we literally now are, you know, we have three salaried working group members. And we are thinking of ourselves as a 20-year project that encompasses both activism or advocacy and art making and some kind of crossover between them. And part of that stems from seeing how a project like City Council Meeting, like once we had run through the resources we had to make it a legible live performance project that could exist in those kinds of venues, it was kind of like, well, what else could this be? And I think that kind of embrace led to things like Perfect City 
just to, it led to me just going like, oh yeah, okay, 20 year project. That's terrifying, but let's try it. What do you think are a couple of essential collaborating tips that an artist should keep in mind, whether working with other artists or with the community on a project? I, I can chime in here. I think I think it was an Ellie Wiesel thing. Ugh, I, I fear I'll get this wrong, but I think I heard him say one time, like, when you get to heaven, what would God say to you? And I'm not a religious person, but, and I think that it's, it was something to, along the lines of, why weren't you more yourself, <laughs> you know? And it really struck me, this idea of itselfness. And when you work with people, that to me became a thing. It's like, can we be ourselves? Like I'm looking for the selfness of each person that I'm working with as the key to like the piece itself, making itself known as well. So like the more we're thinking about like who we're in the room with and can we be ourselves, right? And what does that look like? Because we may not know that. We may not know that personally we may not know that as a group but to to really try to figure out figure that out as a group what happens for me is that it instills in the work it's the work a kind of itselfness so that you're not determining the work the work at a certain time becomes autonomous from you and it begins to tell you like what it wants or what it needs for me that's always a thing about Wow, who you know? What is the itselfness of of each person I'm in the room with, and can this space draw that out of people? And that to me became the key to like the uniqueness of the work, right? Which is that you're never going to get these people together with this material in this moment ever again. And if you're really digging into that, then what you make will be very unique because of that. So I think that's that's a real core thing for me about collaboration and that you really have to, if you're committed to that, you're committed to the work. I, I, I use the word failure, but failure is a possibility because it's success is not the goal, you know? So that that's also part of it, that somebody in the group wants to discover something or that hopefully we're all doing things that we haven't done before. And that means that there's a possibility for failure, right? Man, that what you're describing, uh, it demands a lot of humility. <laughs> I was just thinking like that also, what I really like about that is that it allows you as the artist to like let yourself be transformed by a process and I think I came in early in my work making life as like wanting to be in, not wanting to be in control, but wanting to know what I was doing before I got there. So it's back to that Ruth Malachek thing of like, what do you have to do so that you can let go of this idea that you know where this is going? And then if you are really being your yourself in the company of a group of people, then you are inevitably going to be changed, you know, by that process. So I just, if I can just pick up on that and just say like, let yourself be changed by the work you're making. And then maybe another thing for me is Adrian Marie Brown has this uh, phrase moving at the speed of trust. And I think what we learned a lot with city council meeting was that there has to be 
like it takes longer than you think it's supposed to to build trust with especially in sort of community collaborations like especially if you're coming in somewhere that you're not from so just like allowing that time as much as possible which also demands resources and then the other thing is like a little bit more you know slightly parental to my younger self which is just like curiosity is a muscle and that there are always things to be interested in when it comes to an ongoing process or a new endeavor and that for me it's been very helpful to recognize when my defenses are up and that's shutting me down or recognize when i think i know too soon how to do something because i've done it before but i haven't done this version of that before and so to like keep just trying to engage with like okay what am i curious about especially if a process is really dogging me you know like i wrote a libretto um, during the pandemic that sort of came to me through a collaborator and I'd never done that before. And I just found all these moments when I was like, oh, I know how to do this. And then I realized I didn't. And then I could ask myself, like, what is it that I don't know? And how can I get through this? Instead of panicking and shutting down. Exactly. Or panicking or relying on old habits, you know. Um, so that would, those would be mine, I think. If you'd like to read a longer version of this interview, in which Mallory talks about the past and present of Mabu Mines, and Aaron likewise talks about his work with the theater company Elevator Repair Service, please head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. Be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined and your podcast app allows it, won't you leave us a rating and review? We would surely appreciate it. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening.